Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meetings, Tim Recker interviews Sacha Patel. Tim is the chief investment officer of the $4 billion James Irvine Foundation. And Sacha is a partner and co-founder of Homebrew, a $190 million seed stage venture capital firm that takes a concentrated, hands-on, and thesis-driven approach. 
Sacha also is a venture advisor to Screen Door Partners, an investment vehicle designed to back underrepresented first-time venture capitalists. Before they get going, Tim and I discuss his interest in homebrew, distinction from other operator-led VCs, and his perspective on Screen Door. Tim, great to see you. Thanks for having me, Ted. So why don't we start with how did you first meet Hunter and Sacha? So Irvine originally invested with them in, in their first fund. I actually inherited the relationship when I came in as a CIO. It was relatively early in their life cycle as a firm. And really at that point, they were still what we, I would call technologists moving to the VC space. They've matured over the years. And I think now we would just view them as a venture capitalist. What were some of those aspects of the transition that you saw along the way? What I really appreciated early on, they earned my respect very quickly, is a tremendous amount of thoughtfulness and being very deliberate in their approach. They understood the strategic approach to what they wanted to do, what market they were trying to approach, and the problem they were trying to solve. And broadly speaking, I view capital as fungible, but they understood how their capital was differentiated and how they were perceived by entrepreneurs would evolve over time. And so they took a very deliberate approach to approach that and build the firm and build their brand and reputation in a way that would allow them to effectively make that transition. And what do you think differentiated them from these days? There are a bunch of other venture capitalists coming out of big tech companies. It's hard. And it's something we struggle with as we evaluate all these new firms. The way I describe it is, do people really understand what great looks like in venture? And I think we define great as a fund that's 10x or better. And so a lot of funds are asking for premium carry when we tell them we would fire them in our portfolio. And (laughs) so I think they clearly understood at a company level what they're trying to achieve and get to and the type of people they're trying to back. And I think that's really important. They have clarity of what success looks like. So there's a lot of conversation with VCs and operating experience about being hands-on and helping their portfolio companies. What do you think is different about Homebrew's approach from others who might share a similar story? A lot of people talk about that, but you have to live up to what you're articulating your vision is for the firm. And I think from our reference calls with entrepreneurs, we believe that they have lived up to that with entrepreneurs. They are very highly respected and appreciated. And you know, there's a balance between helping versus overstepping. It's a time of knowing when to provide just good strategic coaching and when to step back and allow the entrepreneurs to just do their thing. And I think they've built a portfolio that is not just in the Bay Area, but in other, other geographies as well. And they are very intentional about how they manage those relationships, how they interact with the entrepreneurs. Again, going back to being deliberate, I think they really understand everything that they do and why they do it to really align with their long-term vision and mission. So the back half of your conversation, you talk about Screen Door, which is this significant collaborative effort to bring diversity into venture capital. I was wondering if you could talk briefly about what it is and what interested you in getting involved. Yeah, so Screen Door is really a separate initiative. It's a collaboration among several GPs, but really it's created by Homebrew to, I'll call it democratize venture capital from creating more opportunity for underrepresented individuals in the ecosystem, both at the VC level, but hopefully if you have more diverse VCs, they'll back more diverse founders. And you'd hope diverse founders would back and hire more diverse teams, et cetera. And that would be better for the ecosystem and lead to better outcomes. And I think 
you know, so this was in a lot of cases, people would describe this as sort of a mission related type investment in that sense. But what we really liked about it is that this was not concessionary capital. That when they came to us with this idea, it was really around creating more opportunity for people, but really around people that can and will deliver great results. And they just need to have the opportunity to do it in the right way. And I think what we loved is just the way in which they've approached the market and partnering with underrepresented venture capitalists and being very deliberate about the process, understanding where the challenges are, and then assembling Screen Door in a way to provide as much support and tools to help them be successful. Obviously, the venture funds have to be successful on their own, but there's investor mentoring that we can help provide. And so one of my team members is actively involved in playing a mentoring role. They have a coalition of other GPs and they can play a mentoring role. So one last question, which is in this era where people are very interested in these types of strategies and you could see the potential value in Screen Door, I'm curious how you thought about that initiative with your lens as an investor in homebrew and the potential just distraction of time from their core venture activities. Obviously, we care a lot about that. And in most firms, we really want them to be very disciplined, not to create multiple product lines and to be distracted. And so we just had a, a really honest conversation with them about that, about how they would manage it with their time. And I think what really appealed to us was the authenticity with how they approached it and the passion. And so we believe that they're willing to put in the extra hours and time. And we've also spent time with them thinking about like, well, how do you balance that and make sure that it doesn't become too much of a distraction and recognize that if they do it right, it actually enhances the ecosystem and should actually enhance the brand. And so we're trying to balance all of those factors. It's actually the same is true for us, quite frankly, because we're this is a just disproportionate amount of our time relative to the amount of capital that we've committed because of all the engagement. But we also believe in the same way that it enhances our brand, enhances our ability to be successful in venture long term. And so it's a commitment that makes sense. And I think the same can be said for homebrew. I think if you think of how things will evolve and how the markets will evolve, they will be better positioned in the future for success. Great. Well, Tim, thanks so much. Thanks for bringing them into the fold. Thank you for asking me to host. Satya, let's start with a quick thumbnail of what Homebrew is and then share more about how you and Hunter met and why you decided to start Homebrew. Yeah, Tim, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's always great to talk to you. The story of Homebrew is a pretty simple one, but it comes down to, first and foremost, a longstanding relationship between me and my co-founding partner, Hunter Walk. We met in the relatively early days of Google, worked side by side on the product team there. And that relationship led to kind of an ongoing desire to work together again after we both moved on from our respective roles within Google. Hunter went on to run product for YouTube. I left to become a partner at a venture firm for a little while and then got together with some of my former Google colleagues to run product at Twitter. But Homebrew really started first and foremost because Hunter and I wanted to work together again and the timing had happened to line up as we were both leaving our respective jobs at Twitter and YouTube. The second important part was we had identified a clear gap in the market, which for us was really best described by this idea that there were plenty of places to get capital at the seed stage at that time, even more so now. But we believed then, still believe it's true that there are very few investors at the seed stage who are willing to be the investor of record, so to speak, or the accountable party. And so we really wanted to be that investor of record that comes from an operating background and that is expert in the challenges that startups face at the seed stage. 
And so that was really the genesis of Homebrew, the team and the clear market opportunity that we saw. And the manifestation of those two things was really a venture fund, which again, sits at the intersection of a very concentrated portfolio strategy and an investment thesis that is based on the idea that as technology is getting cheaper, more flexible, more accessible, it's democratizing access in powerful ways and doing that both within areas of the enterprise, but also in traditional industries that have existed for a long time and are finally benefiting from the impact of technology. What were the most important questions you asked each other before deciding to partner together to create Homebrew? We started first and foremost with making sure that there was real alignment between me and Hunter. So although we had known each other at that point for more than a dozen years, now more than two decades, we wanted to ask from first principles, what were our goals? How did we enjoy spending our time? What were our respective strengths and weaknesses? Did we think that the two of us together would be better than each of us alone? And did we believe that we had something unique to offer to the market? So it started with really understanding each other and making sure that we had a longstanding commitment to our partnership. The second thing that we wanted to figure out was whether there was truly this market need that we thought we'd identified. And so we did some floating of the trial balloon, so to speak, with founders and limited partners that we knew to figure out if there was this gap and whether they felt like there was an opportunity for the two of us to address it. And then the last thing we did was validate the thesis behind which we wanted to invest, the strategy of a concentrated portfolio, a hands-on model, and a thesis based on this democratization of access driven by technology. And so we tried to ask first principles questions around all these things to make sure that what we had conceived in our heads and based on somewhat on our experience was true. And then ultimately that led us to say, yes, we can go do this and we think we can do this successfully. And we've been really lucky with how things have gone over the last nine plus years now. Given you and Hunter were deliberate and strategically building your capital base, you're able to attract some great investors. Can you elaborate on how you thought about that part of building the firm? We thought about Homebrew not just as a firm, but as a product we wanted to put into the marketplace. And for us, it was important that we could make sure that product would be sustainable. And for us, that meant having long-term capital invested as LPs in the fund, meaning people who had exposure to the venture capital asset class, who would be helpful advisors to us, and were committed to the managers that they support. And so a little naively and a little strategically, we decided we wanted to focus on institutional capital. And we were fortunate, having worked in the Valley for a long time and having a lot of relationships that we knew we'd be able to raise some amount of capital from friends and family, so to speak. So that was always our backstop, but we were really committed to trying to see if we could raise institutional capital. And so we were really lucky to get some early incredible support and have added to those list of supporters over the course of time and, and just couldn't be more pleased and feel more fortunate about the partners that we have around the table in terms of our limited partners and their longstanding commitment to the asset class, their now long commitment to us. And, and fortunately for us and for the founders we back, LPs who themselves, like the James Irv Foundation, are doing incredible work to help move our country and our citizens forward. And so we feel really lucky that the returns we're generating are going towards good and noble causes as well. You are an extremely lean team. 
what is your philosophy around team construction, decision-making, and entrepreneur engagement? So starting with the team, there's only two partners at Homebrew, and we have a total staff of five. And the reason that we've kept things small is that our view is that startups at the earliest stages have very specific challenges. And the way to assist with those challenges is kind of hands-on engagement. And so there are really three legs of the stool for startup building in our mind. Startups have to build a product, they have to distribute a product, and they have to build a team and organization that builds and distributes that product. And so all of our energies are geared towards assisting in those three key areas. And our view is that our founders are best served if we are as intimately aware of their challenges in those areas as possible, and then leverage our expertise and our networks to help them address those challenges. So that's meant that we've been able to keep our team lean and focused on support in those areas. And given our small fund size, it's also important that we keep our team lean because we have fairly limited resources, but our fund size is also a strategic decision around what we think is best suited to be as aligned with these early stage founders as possible and allows us to have that concentrated portfolio without being overwhelmed by the number of companies that we work with. So that's a little bit about the team. In terms of our engagement model, again, our goal is not just to be an investor, but it's to be the investor of record, the accountable party that's helping founders build the companies that they envision. And so for us, that means we want to spend the majority of our time working with founding teams as opposed to looking for the next investment. And the way we do that, in addition to being on text and Slack and email all day, every day, is really two formal connection points. The first is, if you're familiar with agile development, we do the equivalent of a weekly or biweekly standup with every founding team. In that conversation, they walk us through what they've been working on, what's coming up, and lastly, and most importantly, where they're stuck. And from that last part of the conversation, we ask them to assign us homework every week. And we say, no job's too big or too small. Anything that's a hair on fire problem for you is something that we should be focused on. And then we get to work. And the beauty of that is we think it creates a founder-investor relationship that is truly based in trust and transparency. And that's a rare thing, I think, to have between investors and founders. But because we're in the weeds together, we really develop that trust and transparency in a powerful way. The other thing it does is because we know what the founders are focused on, we also, by definition, know what they're not focused on. And because we see problems across a large portfolio of companies, we can hopefully help them avoid some common pitfalls and challenges that we see startups in general face that they may not be thinking about. And so that tactical, in-the-weeds, operational conversation goes a long way towards helping founders as they're building their companies. And then the second formal interaction with them is the board meeting. We're big advocates for creating a board at the seed stage. We really use the board meeting as a working session to focus on the one or two strategic topics that are most important at that moment in time. And that is really based on this idea that you've got to take a step back from the day-to-day -day on occasion to really make sure you're aligned against the North Star of the company. So those conversations focus on things like, do we know what the key risks in the business are? And do we know how we plan to mitigate them? Do we know what milestones we need to achieve in order to raise the next round of capital or whatever the next economic milestone might be? Are we putting in place the right people and processes to scale for the very long term? And so a very different set of conversations than we're having on a week to week basis, but equally important as we think of moving the company in the right direction. And so 
again, that hands-on operating model wouldn't be possible if we had a very large portfolio. It wouldn't be economically viable if we didn't have real ownership and concentration in terms of the companies that we do invest in. And we don't think it would be as effective if we had a large team that didn't have visibility across the portfolio and understand the problems that each of these companies face. And so that's how it all ties together, but all anchored in that initial strategy that we described. Thank you. You cover my next question around fund size and how that links in. But given that venture is not stagnant and that it's dynamic, and when you think about your product market fit and how that has evolved over time, how does that play out into fund size? The market in venture capital is unlike anything that's been seen, certainly in recent history, I think in all history. And even in the last three years, it's completely changed relative to what it was. And the biggest change, of course, is that financing rounds have gotten larger and valuations have gotten higher. And as a result, it's meant for us, and I think for a lot of investors, that if you want to obtain the same ownership that you have historically, and you want to have the same upside that you aim for in terms of the returns that you want to generate, your fund size needs to get larger to reflect that. And so we've gotten modestly larger over the course of time. Our first fund was 35 million. Our second fund was 65 million. And our third fund is 90 million. So we think that's kept up with inflation, but it doesn't change our strategy at all. It's still a similarly concentrated portfolio, ownership, hands-on model, thesis-driven. And we're big believers that your fund size needs to reflect your strategy. If you set your fund size and then try to create a strategy around it, we think that's a recipe for failure. And so we've always tried to make sure we have a well-defined strategy, a strategy defined in pen, so to speak, and tactics defined in pencil. And fund size is one of those things that is a tactic that should reflect the strategy. And so that's how we've adjusted over the course of time. If we were starting Homebrew from scratch today, it would probably look a little bit different than it does because the market has changed. But we have the benefit of nine years of history and reputation and track record that allows us to compete effectively with the strategy that we have. Great. And I know you've touched on this a bit already, but what makes Homebrew distinctive to its entrepreneurs, given the plethora of capital in the industry, and there's no shortage of opportunities of capital, so it is highly competitive. So what is really distinctive about Homebrew and appealing to entrepreneurs? There's nothing more important than the founder community that will speak on our behalf, the folks that we've worked with over the course of the last nine years. So I think reputation is really important. And that reputation is built upon the model that we've executed, which is really being that partner to a small number of early stage companies. When you are sitting alongside them, involved in the key day-to-day and strategic problem solving, that is a level of time commitment, reputation commitment, sweat commitment that extends well beyond the capital commitment. And that's a rare thing to get from investors, even in today's market. Like we said, capital is abundantly available, but commitment and counsel, we think is still a relatively scarce commodity. And so that's the thing I think that differentiates us. And also hand in hand with that willingness to work hard is the focus on the seed stage. Seed stage companies have a very unique set of challenges relative to companies that are further along. And we believe that our mindset, our advice, our network 
are particularly well suited to that stage of company building. Given that both of you came from a technologist background, can you talk about the evolution as a venture capitalist? What was it like early on as a venture capitalist when you were viewed more as a technologist? And maybe how has that shifted over time? One of our theses around new firms is that technologists are operators that are able to make the transition to being an effective investor. Our view is that they're, they're really extraordinary and quite special. We believe you and Hunter have done that, but I think it's interesting to hear how that journey went and how it's evolved over time. The transition from operating to investing was something we talked about for quite a bit of time before going down this path. I had the benefit of having worked at a number of venture firms before and had been able to apprentice in the industry in a way that I think gave me visibility into how I would do things and how I might do things differently if I was building my own firm. And then Hunter, having worked strictly on the operating side, had done quite a bit of angel investing, but recognized that being a portfolio manager is different than being an investor. We talked about that explicitly as we were getting the fund off the ground. So the biggest changes in coming from the operating side you have a tendency to do a couple of things as an investor. One is you tend to take the ideas that are in your head and kind of overlay them on the ideas of a founder. And so oftentimes you might be talking to a founder who's pitching their business and see what you might do with that opportunity as opposed to what the founder really has in mind. And so that's a real danger is thinking that you're in the founder seat in some ways or are going to be able to nudge them in a direction that you might feel better about than where they're starting. So that's one is just being aware that it really is the founder's company and their vision that you're backing and not what you imagine the vision might be. The second is, as you work with founders after an investment, operators can have a tendency to grip too hard to say things like, well, this is how I would do it, which is the wrong approach for a couple of reasons. One is, as you get further away from operating, your experiences and kind of how you did things is less and less relevant to the founders that you work with. And two, our job as investors is not to dictate to founders. It's to be a sounding board and to provide counsel, but it's their company and they need to make the decisions and own those decisions. And we've really got to avoid trying to impose our point of view and our decisions on them. And so those are a couple of things coming from the operating side that I think all investors who choose the investing path from operating need to be aware of. And then the other thing is maybe the most challenging as an investor generally is just the long feedback cycles. As a product person on the operating side, we could launch something and have data on it the next day and iterate and improve really quickly. And as an investor, you really have to be committed to your strategy because the data takes a long time to get back. And the early data is mostly negative because your failures come before your successes. So it really takes a stick to that can be challenging for people who come from the operating side. And so those are a few of the things that come to mind with that question. Well, we're actually jealous of the feedback loop that you have because it's actually quicker than the feedback loop for fund and fund managers. <laughs> Remind me never to be an LP. Oh, oops. I made that mistake too now. Homeper has been very successful financially. Can you talk about how you define success at Homebrew? The reason we started Homebrew is because we wanted to work with early stage founders. And so for us, success is defined by the work we do with those founders on a day-to-day -day basis. And if we can look back and say that 
we helped founders create companies that have both value and merit and who are able to look at our work with them and point to specific moments in time or specific things we did where we created value for them, that's success for us. If we do that, then the economic value will be there and we'll have generated great returns for our investors and for ourselves. But ultimately, we want to be measured by what founders will say about their experience working with us. Great. Many firms talk about the types of investments they make, et cetera. So when you think about the underlying companies, what is a quintessential homebrew investment? What are you looking for? I think a lot of investors debate whether it's the jockey or the horse. And our view is both is the answer, right? It's an and, not an or. So we really think of ourselves as investors who value team, team market and team 2x, the market opportunity. And the third leg of the stool is product. But coming from product backgrounds, I think we're willing to take product risk. And we understand that what the initial product is, is unlikely to be the product that eventually is the one that has success. So we really emphasize the team and the market opportunity. And when it comes to the team, really what we're thinking about is the why behind the founding team and why they've decided to pursue this particular opportunity. What makes them uniquely suited to solve this problem that they've identified? And what's their vision for how they're going to do that in a way that is 10x better than it's ever been done before? So we're looking for people who are mission-driven in that way, who have an insatiable curiosity and are interested in learning really quickly, have a firm set of hypotheses, but flexibility enough to react to data and change their hypotheses, who are storytellers and can attract capital employees, partners, and customers via their ability to articulate what it is that they're doing, and who have a relentlessness because startups are nothing if a series of setbacks. And so you've got to be able to overcome those setbacks and keep your eye on the prize. And so we spend a lot of time with founders understanding them as people as much as understanding their idea. But the second part of that is the idea or the market opportunity that they're going after. And for us, it's most exciting when it's a market opportunity that can't be measured in the billions of dollars being spent today. What we're really trying to do is identify a market opportunity where there is an acute pain being felt by a large number of people or companies where the addressing of that pain can lead to the extracting of an economic rent that is meaningful. So we always talk about markets that are large, acute, and valuable. And that's really what we're trying to understand is, is there a market that meets those criteria? Do the founders have a particular point of view and a reason for why they're attacking that market opportunity? And then lastly is the product. And like we said, we expect the product's going to change. So what we really like to hear articulated is a product vision that starts with a very narrow near-term focus, one problem solved really well for one type of customer, but a broad long-term vision, a path for how you move from that wedge to something that takes larger shape over the course of time. And so that's really the three boxes we're trying to check. And for us, it's an and, it's not an or. That's fantastic. Well, I could keep asking questions around homebrew as there is so much more there. But the real reason I wanted you on the show today is to talk about Screen Door. Screen Door was launched publicly in June of 2021, but you came to us in the latter half of 2020 with this idea and the thesis of how homebrew can make a difference in driving greater representation in the venture industry. 
Would you share your thoughts on what motivated you and Hunter to create Screen Door? It starts almost with the founding of Homebrew, honestly. The reason that we're called Homebrew, in addition to some other things, is really that Hunter and I believe that all of us in the technology and venture capital industries are standing on the shoulders of giants and on those that came before us. And so the name Homebrew is a throwback or a nod to the old Homebrew Computer Club of the 70s that started in the Valley. It's where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak met and started Apple Computer, along with a number of other reasons. That's why we decided to call the firm Homebrew. And for us, it's clear like we've benefited from these relationships, these people that have come before us. But it's also very clear, and there's no debate, that there are entire segments of the population who haven't benefited or been part of the ecosystem in the same way. There's no debate around lack of representation in our industry for entire groups of the population. And we felt like homebrew had matured to a point where we wanted to do something about that, but we knew we couldn't do that via homebrew because we didn't have plans to grow our partnership or grow our assets under management in a way that was going to allow us to add to our team. At the same time, we saw lots of noble efforts for helping people enter the venture capital industry and the technology industries. But coming from product backgrounds, we always think about how do we do things faster and at more scale. And so we sat down to think about the history of our industries, the VC and technology. And we saw that there's been this virtuous cycle that the entire set of industries have benefited from. Venture capitalists fund founders, founders then hire employees. The, some of those companies go on to be successful and that capital and that council feeds back into the ecosystem. But again, the people who've been part of that virtuous cycle are limited to just a few groups of the population and their entire subsegments, entire groups that haven't been able to penetrate that virtuous cycle. And so as we thought about that, we asked the question, like, what would be the best way of trying to replicate that virtuous cycle and to be able to do it quickly and at scale? And our view was that if we could put underrepresented check writers, venture capitalists into business, that was going to be the way to kickstart that virtuous cycle. Because it's empirically true that underrepresented venture capitalists are more likely to fund underrepresented founders who are more likely to hire underrepresented employees. And if those groups can have the economic success that the industries have traditionally enjoyed, then that creates generational wealth and advice and counsel that feeds back into those ecosystems. And so that's the thesis behind and our theory of change behind Screen Door and why we felt like we had an opportunity to leverage the work that we had done via Homebrew, which was really building LP relationships with folks like you and being on the ground with all these people who are trying to raise funds and write checks and knowing intimately what it means to be successful in that segment of the market to put together Screen Door alongside a group of GPs who are underrepresented themselves and a group of LPs who share our belief that there's an opportunity to create this new virtuous cycle. I think this was the first time in my career where you kind of had us at hello during our first conversation on this. I think it was literally a phone call and we hung up and we were like, wow, this is something we should be a part of. And from that point on, it was more about figuring out how and understanding what you were doing and, and how to be a part of it. There was so much unknown and our decision was more based on our belief in the team at Homebrew and your commitment and desire to be successful. So with that, can you just talk about what is the objective specifically for Screen Door and tell us about its structure? Our goal is pretty simple. We want to generate outsized returns for our limited partners by helping to put underrepresented check writers into business 
with capital and counsel. It's really to recreate that virtuous cycle that Hunter and I have benefited from for an entire segment of the population that hasn't been able to benefit from it in the same way we have. And so this is really important, I think, and and something that's clear to us and clear to our LP is that this is not concessionary capital. We are trying to generate outstanding economic returns because that's what's going to create that generational wealth and that advice and that counsel that feeds back into the ecosystem. So structurally, what that's meant is that, like you, we were gratified by the incredible interest and commitment from the institutions that we approached. And we were able to, in partnership with them and a partnership with 10 GPs, create a fund-to-fund-like vehicle, but not a fund-to-fund structurally. What we did is we created what's called an investment club. And the reason that we did that was, one, we wanted to create a structure that made it easy for traditional LPs to invest. And as you know, fund-to-funds have a double carry, double fee issue that makes it difficult for some institutions and some LPs to invest. And so the investment club allowed us to do two things. One, it allows us structurally to create a no carry, no fee vehicle. So all of us GPs who are involved are actually LPs in the fund, and that is our carried interest. There's no other carried interest or GP interest. And two, by virtue of having an investment club structure instead of a fund of fund structure, we can continually add capital to our base if we'd like. And also, we don't have to be registered with the SEC. So those two things were really important in terms of speed and flexibility. And again, coming from operating and product backgrounds, we thought long and hard about what allows us to move as quickly as possible to get this experiment off the ground and what allows us to have impact at scale. And so both of those things led us to this investment club structure. And there's a bunch of other things in there. I want to drill down on these. First, let's go back to returns. So you mentioned this is not concessionary capital, and this is a really important point. Obviously, you can have concessionary capital striving for the same type of outcomes. There's been a lot of capital that has tried to do that over time, but in my experience, it's generally not been as successful as you'd like it to be. And I know as an organization that's chosen to be an anti-racist organization, our team had a choice of whether to create concessionary capital in the endowment Or do we try and do things that are actually return enhancing for the endowment? We've opted for the latter, but we view that as a much harder challenge, but if done right with much better reward. Can you talk about what is your expectation and why it is not concessionary capital? Why do you believe you can generate exceptional returns doing this? One of the things that we've seen while we've been building Homebrew over the course of the last nine years is that startup activity is blossoming everywhere. And while it's been true that Silicon Valley has been kind of the epicenter and will continue to be for some period of time, it's also true that there is demonstrated success in markets all across the United States and all over the world now, especially in the technology industry. What's also true is that venture capitalists, either by design or because of unconscious bias, tend to back founders and back ideas that they relate to or that they can readily understand. And so our view is while startup activity is becoming more diversified, capital is not yet. And so we believe that there's an opportunity to generate incredible returns because these underrepresented GPs are more likely to uncover opportunity that the traditional VC industry overlooks or doesn't understand. And so 
that combined with the historical data around diverse teams and diverse organizations and the returns that they generate relative to less diverse teams and organizations, both of those things suggest to us this is an incredible way to generate economic returns that are as good, if not better, than what the industry has historically been able to generate by supporting venture capitalists. And so that's a belief that we have because of the data. That's a belief that we have from our work on the ground. And that's a belief that the other GPs who work with us as underrepresented GPs are living day to day. So I think we feel very strongly that there's opportunity to be uncovered and discovered that the industry historically just ignored. I think what I'm hearing you say, which aligns with how we think about this, which is there are three levels of success. First, there is the expectation of financial success. Second, there is a focus on success and creating more diversity in the venture capital industry. And third, there's an expectation of success around funding more diverse entrepreneurs and creating diversity in representation of the companies. Let's go to the second part of that, given we just talked about the economic success. What is your ambition and hope from a diversity point of view within the venture capital industry, which is significantly behind in terms of its diversity? How would you define success over the long term? And what are you hoping for? Ultimately, with Screen Door, we're trying to find investors who are going to be successful without us because they're going to be fantastic investors regardless, but where we can accelerate or catalyze their fundraising where we can help them become even better investors and help them build a track record. Because if we're successful, we will be a consistent source of capital for them, but they'll also benefit from the apprenticeship, so to speak, that has been unavailable to them in the traditional venture capital industry so that they can raise capital down the road from institutions who share our vision and goals. The LPs who are investors in Screen Door and LPs outside of Screen Door who need structurally to see something a little bit different in order to write the check directly. So for us, whether these GPs go on to raise subsequent funds or join other funds is probably not a big distinction. We just want more successful underrepresented check writers in the industry. And like I said earlier, there are lots of efforts underway to get them hired into traditional firms and to increase the numbers that way. And that's a good way of doing things, but we just think that's slower and will take more time because the number of seats is small. How long it takes to prove yourself within those platforms is a really long time. And we think that we can put a large number of people into business and help them be successful at a scale that will hopefully be replicated by other institutions like ours over the course of time. Fantastic. You're also expecting Screen Door to be more than just capital. And can you share more about how Screen Door will go above and beyond being a source of capital for its partners and bring in the fact that you have a coalition of 10 GPs, which is fairly unusual as an approach? Also talk about how you are expecting LPs to contribute as well. Yeah. So in addition to capital, which obviously is important in helping put people into business, the other thing that all these GPs have not been able to benefit from for the most part is the ability to apprentice in the industry. And we really do believe that venture capital is an apprenticeship business. There's no better way of learning the business than working with people who've been doing it for a long period of time. And so we're trying to approximate that via our coalition of GPs and LPs. And that's taking two specific forms. One is a structured curriculum that we want to offer over the course of two years to every GP that we support. 
that covers all the issues that one might face as a portfolio and fund manager. Everything from fundraising to portfolio construction to building the fund, the firm and hiring, you name it. All the different categories of work that go into being a VC in today's world. And that curriculum will be delivered by the GP and LP coalition over the course of time. The second thing we're doing is that every GP we support is getting a pair of coalition GPs or mentor GPs from the group who are kind of their point people or their day-to-day contacts for any and all questions, issues related to the work that they're doing. And so we want to have kind of a, a formal engagement through the curriculum and a more ad hoc informal engagement via the GP mentors so that everyone feels like they're being supported and have resources by which to get the hair on fire problems that they're facing addressed readily. And the entire GP coalition will work across the portfolio, but there'll be point people who are the nodes in the network who are responsible for particular GP and relationships where we're backing those GPs. And so that at a very high level, there's more that we're doing, but in the same way, we've kind of have an operating model for homebrew. We've created an operating model for screen door that will hopefully help us have the same kind of impact on these GPs as we try to have on founders. I know there's a lot of groups that are interested in being backed by Screen Door. Can you share more about what you're looking for, the types of people you expect Screen Door to back? Yeah. So first and foremost is, again, historically in our industry, everything, especially fundraising, is based on referrals. And, and we want to run as open a process as possible because we realize that a lot of the GPs that we do end up supporting will not be well-connected in the Valley and amongst other venture capitalists and LPs. And so anybody can go to screendoorpartners.com and the contact page there and effectively apply for consideration for Screendoor. So that's really important to us that we run as open a process as possible. The second thing is we know, again, by virtue of the types of venture capitalists we are likely to back, that most people are not going to have a traditional investing track record, probably not even an angel investing track record. And so what we're really looking for is a demonstration of the skills that most venture capitalists need to be successful. So how are they going to source opportunities? Do they have a demonstrated network or work experience or volunteer experience or whatever it might be that leads them to run into talent? Have they demonstrated the ability to look at the deals that are opportunities that are sourced by them and pick intelligently? So whether it's having voted with their feet and worked at certain companies, whether it's volunteering their time, whether it's side projects that they're committed to, whatever it may be that suggests that they have a nose for identifying opportunity. And then lastly, for us, because we believe like the job of a venture capitalist is not just writing a check, but supporting companies what have they done that demonstrates their ability and willingness to help? And again, that could manifest itself in many different forms. And so we're really trying to take what we think are the core skills of venture capital and identify ways of translating non-traditional backgrounds and experiences into that skill set. The second thing that we're trying to evaluate is, all right, it's one thing to know that you want to be a venture capitalist. It's another thing to answer the question, why does the world think you should be a venture capitalist, right? What's your reason for being? How are you going to distinguish yourself in the market? And so we really want a firm articulation of why. Why is our firm going to be chosen for cap tables in a market where capital is abundant? And then probably the last high-level criteria is we're really looking for people who are interested in building firms. 
and not just building a fund. So we're really thinking about what are the questions that we want to ask? What can they articulate around what the shape of their team, organization, funds, firm will take over the course of time? And are they intentional about all of that? So those are some of the things that we're looking for. And I'm sure not hopefully too distinct from the types of things you look for with the exception of the track record, but we're really spending a lot of time getting to know the people because it's going to be very people oriented given the lack of a traditional track record. When you think about Screen Door, what is the role long-term once you invest in one of these individuals? When we think about investing in a fund for the first time, it's generally you're in for at least two or three funds as you have to believe in the thesis and the feedback loop is quite long, as I referenced earlier. So how does that play out with Screen Door and what is its role as these firms evolve over time? Yeah, I think if we're as successful as we want to be, we will have additional Screen Door vehicles. So we hope to be a consistent source of capital to these GPs over some period of time. And most importantly, maybe we really want to be a liaison between these GPs and future sources of capital in the form of traditional institutional investors. So if we're successful, not only will they be raising additional capital from us, but they'll have graduated, so to speak, and developed enough of a track record and history and scale where they can attract capital from the James Irvine Institution and Harvard and Yale and Princeton and folks like that who are long-term investors in the asset class and the type of people that we've been fortunate to raise capital from and who we sought out when we were raising our first fund. The second thing, again, is we want to provide this kind of apprenticeship-like experience. And our hope is that that is a relationship that will extend well beyond the formal screen door relationship. Because again, in our careers, both on the operating side and on the venture capital side, those informal mentorships have been as valuable as any formal mentorship or formal boss-employee relationships as any other. And so we really want to make sure that we're getting to know these GPs on a personal level and that our coalition of GPs have an ongoing relationship with these folks over the course of time. You mentioned some of the investors that you have been fortunate enough to partner with. Can you share more about whether you're open to new investors for Screen Door, either now or in the future? Yeah, we believe that we are going to accept additional capital. We really wanted to walk before we run, but we've been overwhelmed by interest from prospective GPs since we started and announced Screen Door. And so we think it makes sense to raise a little bit more capital. So we will increase the capital base here over the next few quarters, which gives us the opportunity to involve even more LPs who share our vision and mission and who also believe that there is a strong economic rationale for investing in these groups in this way. And we're excited to have those conversations and have more capital to deploy in support of some of these GPs. The other thing that's going to allow us to do is right now we're a little bit limited in terms of the fund sizes that we can support. We try to represent 10% of the funds that we back And with the size vehicle that we have now, which is on the order of 55 million, that really means that it's really hard to do anything above 100 million in fund size. But we have already been introduced to managers who are raising more than that. And we think it would be a smart economic decision to be able to support some of those folks. And a larger vehicle will allow us to take advantage of some of those opportunities as well. Well, I've really enjoyed the conversation. What you're doing is really exciting. I want to thank you for taking the initiative and the lead to create Screen Door. 
I now want to turn to some closing questions and sort of a lightning round so we get to know you as a person a little bit better. First, let's start off with what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I'm really working hard on my golf game. I am not a great golfer, but I am getting better. One of those sports where I feel like with the right amount of time, I can continue to get better, which is always a nice feeling when you know that there's some upside in the time that you invest. And so uh, I'm spending a little time there. What is your most important daily habit? The one that I've been doing for as long as I can remember, which is both a source of sanity for me and a source of productivity, is that I end each day with creating a list of the three most important things that I need to get done the next day. And as long as I get those three things done, the day is a success. And if I get anything else done on top of that, it is all gravy, but it allows me to go to bed and fall asleep as soon as my head hits the pillow um, and allows me to be very focused when I wake up in the morning around what's most important to get done that day. Great advice. Well, my favorite question and the one I always look forward to hearing the answer to is, what's the best book or podcast that you read or listened to recently? Ooh, recently, I've had a little bit of time to do more reading than usual, so it's been good. But the book that I just thought was gripping and horrifying in many ways was Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. It's about the Sackler family, which changed the entire business of marketing pharmaceuticals and instigated the opioid crisis that we know today. So just a, a fascinating read and just shows what power and wealth, not necessarily ill-intentioned, what impact that it can have if it kind of spirals out of control. What is your biggest personal pet peeve? Inauthenticity. When someone says one thing and does another, for me, that's just something that is hard to tolerate both personally and professionally. And I just think life's too short to one, engage with folks like that and two, to, to act that way. So that's a big personal pet peeve of mine. I was going to ask you your investment pet peeve, but I think it'd be the same one. So we'll go to the next question, which is which two people have had the greatest impact on your professional life? Oh my goodness. So many people. I just feel so lucky to have been surrounded by people who've given me support and advice and been advocates. But if I had to pick two, one was one of my bosses at DoubleClick, a gentleman by the name of Doug Knopper, who's now a very successful entrepreneur himself. And he was the person who first bet on me as a product manager and helped me build my career on the operating side in that role. And the second is another person who was a peer and boss as well, a gentleman by the name of Gokul Rajaram. Gokul is a longtime product executive at DoorDash and Square and at Facebook, but he and I worked together at Google and he gave me tremendous responsibility paired with tremendous support in the early days of Google. And both Doug and Gokul are still very good friends, both peers and mentors and people who I am forever indebted to. Right. And what teaching from your parents most stayed with you? I am the child of immigrants who came here with next to nothing and managed to raise a family and, and live the American dream. And I think the thing that I took away from them and which they hammered into me is that there's just no substitute for hard work. Hard work can overcome a lot of deficiencies in a lot of different areas, but if you're willing to outwork anyone you're going to make it far. And so that's probably stuck with me for a very long time. And the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? I think focusing early on in my career on the what and not considering the who. What I learned from that is when making career decisions for me, and it's the advice I give to anybody at this point who asked me about it, is like the only two things that matter are people and problem. 
and don't try to over-architect your career. It's easy to like think lots of things are important when making a career decision. You can go down a rabbit hole, but I think if you just focus on those two things, both people and a problem, then it's going to free you to do your best work and everything else is going to work itself out. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? It's important for people to have agency. No one but you is going to be your best advocate. People may give you opportunity or bet on you, but only if you ask and advocate for yourself first. I certainly made the mistake early on of assuming through hard work and good intention that that would be recognized. And the reality of the world is you've got to advocate for yourself and no one's going to do that better than you. Fantastic. Well, Satya, this has been such a pleasure. So thank you for your time today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. Thank you.